You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here at the AGO. And it's delightful tonight to be introducing two people from Sotheby's Canada who are going to talk to us about the Picasso art market, which is really interesting. And it's something we don't talk about much at the gallery, what the art is worth. I think in the old days it was definitely something people worried about, theft and insurance and so on. But we'll be hearing a little bit about the value of his work tonight. And I would like, before I introduce the speakers, I'd like to, like to thank Sotheby's Canada in particular, Lucila Portoraro from Sotheby's Canada, who have presented this with us in partnership with us. So thank you very much, Lucila. So from New York, we have Molly Ottambler and Elizabeth Gareb. They're vice presidents from Sotheby's New York, and they're going to talk about Picasso and the art market and the relationship he had with his dealers, which I think is going to be really interesting, given what I know about his relationship with various other people in his life. <laughs> they will also talk about the current market for Picasso's work. Miss Art Ambler, as director of day sales, and in her 15 years at Sotheby's, has been privileged to handle Picasso's works from every period and in every medium, from delicate pencil drawings to unique terracotta hand-painted owls. I love his, his hand-painted pottery. Ms. Gareb has been involved with many record-breaking sales, including Pica Pablo Picasso's En Mala Peep. So I would like first to introduce, to bring up Elizabeth. They will speak one after the other, and then we'll have a chance for questions afterwards. Thank you very much, Jillian. Good evening, everyone. This is my first time in Toronto, so I'm very excited to be here for many reasons. So I'm going to talk a bit about um, Picasso as a business person, not only as an artist, but as a business person, because he was a business person. And um, we shouldn't forget that. And when we're looking at his pictures, they were intended to make their mark um, in the history of art and also establish Picasso's reputation as one of the greatest living artists um, in Western art history. And he, that was his intention all through his life. He thought of himself as uh, one of the greats, and he wanted to create a legacy. And he knew that in order to do that, he had to forge relationships with people who were going to help him uh, spread his reputation internationally as an artist worth investing in. So Picasso comes to France at the turn of the century, and he uh, didn't speak very much French at all. He, in fact, he was very uh, self-conscious about his lack of French. So oftentimes he would find himself in situations as a young artist getting um, uh, shortchanged by dealers or people who wanted to take advantage of him. But he persisted in trying to make his way, and he worked at basically what was a tenement. What you're seeing um, in the image next to Picasso is a photo of the Bateau Lavoir, which was his studio, which really was a rundown, moldy, decrepit, disgusting tenement that he shared with other artists during the time. And he painted some of his greatest works there, including this picture that we're seeing. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the sale of this picture later on. But this is called Boy with a Pipe. 
It was painted in around 1905 uh, in the Bateau Lavoir, and it was the style that's known as the Rose Period, um, which was a style that Picasso um, was very successful in uh, exhibiting in small shows uh, throughout Paris and also uh, attracting the attention of some of the more avant-garde um, critics and dealers and also patrons during the day. One of the critics, uh, one of the dealers, excuse me, that really kind of noticed Picasso first on was a woman named Bertha Vial. And she was, she's very interesting because she's pretty much forgotten in history. This is a, she's a dealer who uh, was committed to new artists and she was committed to advancing new artists. And she gave a lot of the artists that we know today their start in France, including Picasso. She was the first dealer, first gallery to really give him a show. Um, she also gave Modigliani a show. She gave so many of the artists that we know today um, their, their first space to kind of express themselves. And sadly, because Bert was so committed to her artists, she didn't take very much commission. So as the artists became famous and people started buying their work, she didn't really have very much money. And artists oftentimes relied on their dealers' money to buy their paints and supplies. So artists would move on, which is what Picasso did. He moved on. He moved on to a man named Ambrose Vollard. And Vollard was the Svengali of artists, the early part of the 20th century. He was the dealer of Cezanne and Van Gogh and some of the Impressionists, including Renoir. And he was exceptionally shrewd. So in 1901, he approached Picasso and gave Picasso his first blowout one-man show in Paris. And from that moment on, Picasso was on the map in Paris. But still, Vollard was quite careful in signing up Picasso. He didn't want to give Picasso a contract. So Picasso was still looking uh, to really solidify his reputation um, among people other than dealers. Uh, he turned towards some of the well-established families and patrons of the art, including the Steins. And you're seeing a picture of Gertrude and Michael Stein and the rest of their family. And as many of you may know, Picasso uh, formed a great friendship with Gertrude. There's a, this is a picture of Gertrude and the famous portrait that Picasso painted of her. Um, and a, legend has it that she absolutely hated the portrait and said, it looks nothing like me. And Picasso said, someday it will. And indeed it did, much, much to her chagrin. Um, so Gertrude and her partner Alice um, remained very close friends with Picasso. Occasionally they'd have their falling outs, which were usually over intellectual matters. Um, but Gertrude, because she was so wealthy, and she was also very influential in the art scene in the teens in Paris, she held salons in her home, and she hung Picasso's pictures alongside those of Matisse, another young upstart, and uh, the Impressionists, and Cezanne. And she was really helping make a name for Picasso, and he knew that, and he kept, he kept kind of... Um, engaging with her because he knew what she could do for him as well as uh, being a, a good intellectual partner for him in certain senses. But the man who really helped Picasso kind of make a name for himself and reach the levels of what pretty much was celebrity status in Paris during the time was this fellow here. This is Daniel Henry Kahnweile. And you're looking at a picture of Kahnweile and the the painting that Picasso did of Kahnweiler in 1910. Now, I also, when I showed you the slide of Vollard, there was also, I'm going to go back, so excuse the flash. Okay, there's 
Picasso's painting of Vollard, also done in 1910. Picasso did these two portraits not because he um, had any particular affinity for them as subjects, but because he was kind of courting them. He wanted to impress them, and it was almost like his way of proposing to them, look, out here I'm painting your picture in this radical style, don't you think I'm great? And Vollard said, yes, you're great, but I'm not going to give you a contract. Uh, and Kahnweiler said, you're great, here's a contract. And Conviler's investment in Picasso and his promotion, his tireless promotion and lifelong devotion, as we'll see, to Picasso really uh, established Picasso for the rest of his life. So Picasso moves out of the Bateau Lavoir soon after his contract is signed with Conviler um, in the early part of the teens. And he moves into a much bigger studio where he um, makes grand canvases. And now people in Paris know him, and they're coming to his studios to see him. On the floor, you see some sculptures uh, that actually Vollard had a hand in helping Picasso cast into bronze. So Picasso still wasn't alienating dealers in Paris, but he did have this contract with Kahnweiler. Now, sadly... Well, first I'll talk a little bit about what Kahnweiler did. Um, sadly for Kahnweiler, he doesn't uh, come out as uh, successful as Picasso because during the First World War, Kahnweiler as a German is looked upon as an enemy and he's forced to liquidate all of his gallery stock. But Picasso, on the other hand, becomes a very rich man. So here I have some stats for you. Math people in the audience, you have to be impressed because I'm an art person and this took a lot of effort. So Picasso earns 13,000 francs from Kahnweiler, which is a lot of money. Um, in U.S. dollars, uh, basically, uh, he is earning twice the amount of the average income in the U.S. in 1913. So he is above middle class. He's, he's rich. Uh, and as a kind of well-to-do, top-scale Paris artist, he's meeting a lot of very interesting people, and he's attracting people outside of his humble circle as this young Catalan painter, including people who have to do with the higher end of arts like the ballet. He's still, now we're, you're seeing a picture of Picasso with his um, first wife, Olga Koklova, who was a ballerina with the Ballet Russe, uh, Serge Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, and through Olga, who was very status conscious, Picasso met a lot of the, the bon monde of Paris, and he uh, really kind of courted a lot of very established bourgeois people that he would never have come across in his humble origins at the Bateau Lavoir. And Olga was also very status conscious. She wanted to live in a great house. She wanted Picasso to make a lot of money. She wanted to dress in a certain way. She wanted to spend her time in Paris, going to parties and going to dinner. Picasso really didn't want to do any of that. Um, and so he started getting tired of Olga, and he started cheating on her. But in his professional life, he knew he had to. Um, one of the people that Picasso uh, met with Olga was the dealer Paul Rosenberg. This is after the First World War. Kahnweiler, unfortunately, as the German is gone, he's out of the picture. Picasso is looking around uh, for new dealers. And Paul Rosenberg and his brother Lance, for a little while, proved to be the men to take Picasso to the next level internationally. Paul Rosenberg was Picasso's dealer in the 20s. They, he, lived, he and his wife lived right next door to Picasso and Olga. Uh, they partied together. They went to lots of dinner parties. They went to um, 
uh, many events and operas and society galas together. Olga loved them. Picasso couldn't stand them. He didn't want to show up to a lot of his gallery openings. But Paul Rosenberg was tireless in his international promotion of Picasso and um, helped Picasso achieve prices that were unimaginable for an artist in the 1920s and, of course, the 1930s during the Great Depression. I'm showing you a page from Rosenberg's stock ledger. Um, Here he has uh, a list of pictures that he is sending to a collector in New York by the name of John Quinn. And you can see there, there are some uh, Picassos he's sending over, a Picasso called Maternité, which you see on screen, um, and together with another picture of um, called the, the Fontainebleau Fountain. It's, he's sending, uh, it's a, I think it says, a combined total of 750 no, 75,000, 75,000 francs. Um, Picasso's annual salary from Rosenberg was 100,000 francs. So uh, he's doing, both, both men are doing very well. Rosenberg took a commission from Picasso, of course. So in the beginning, it was uh, around double uh, uh, what, what he would give Picasso, uh, or 50%. Um, and Rosenberg realized there could be a very short turnover rate with Picasso's pictures because Picasso was so prolific. Um, but Rosenberg unlike Kahnweiler at the time, could really have a great outreach um, outside of France. He sent pictures with the help of um, the Wildenstein Gallery to London. He sent Picasso's pictures to the United States. And slowly but surely, Picasso was starting to gain a reputation outside of France. We're looking at a picture now that sold for up until a few weeks ago. Um, This picture was the record for any picture sold at auction. Um, in 2010, it brought $106.5 million. It was painted in 1932, and uh, Paul Rosenberg and Picasso together helped to organize two exhibitions, one in Paris and one in Zurich, that Picasso pretty much curated himself. Picasso chose the pictures. He chose how they'd hang in both galleries. Um, and Rosenberg um, was, even though Rosenberg was a dealer, he was very involved in the museum hangings of this particular exhibition in Zurich. Included in the exhibition was this picture. Um, after the exhibition, you know, of course, Rosenberg was hoping that the pictures hanging in these museums were going to sell, and he had this on commission from Picasso. Well, as it turns out, uh, Rosenberg kept this in his stock until the 1950s when he sold it to uh, the family of Francis Brody for almost $20,000. Um, and you can see it was an incredibly good investment for the Brodies. And also, considering that this, uh, this transaction to the Brodies in 1950 happened during Picasso's lifetime, it's extraordinary. One picture making four times the average salary in the United States in the 1950s for a living artist was unprecedented. So this is really something that shows you, even in his lifetime, Picasso is achieving staggering prices and is an exceptionally rich man. However, Picasso really wanted to cultivate this whole idea that he's this bohemian. And he he once said in 1918 that the, the dealer was the enemy. And he would tell anybody that listened to him about how he just shunned society life and he hated dealers, but he was really indebted to the dealers to making his reputation. In fact, so much so, he was so conscious of the way that he presented himself that when Cecil Beaton, the famous photographer, came to his house in the 1930s, Cecil Beaton was expecting to find this kind of raggedy-dressed artist uh, 
in a, in, surrounded by um, paintbrushes and, and uh, a palette, but instead he found a very neatly coiffed Picasso in a button-down suit. And Picasso knew that you know he wanted to be presented in these Cecil Beaton photographs as a very established man in the future. He wanted these these uh, very artistic photographs to kind of live on and and preserve him as like a great artist. He didn't he so he was playing kind of. Uh, both faces. He wanted to be seen as a bohemian, but at the same time, he understood the power of presentation and the power of networking. Um, So during the 1930s and into the Second World War, times were tough for everyone in Europe, but Picasso really became uh, a hero in terms of the artists living in France. Unlike a lot of a lot of the Jewish artists in France, Picasso um, could stay in Paris without being harassed. Um, so he did, and that he did. He stayed in Paris. He worked the entire time during the Second World War, but he wasn't allowed to exhibit anything. So he kept his paintings along with the paintings of several of his artist friends who did have to flee in his ba- in his own personal bank vault. Um, he, and so he was uh, safe. He was playing a safeguarding role, but he was also showing a sort of resistance, in a sense, by continuing to work and produce during the war, even though he couldn't exhibit. He could sell, however. There were always people looking to buy his pictures. Um, you're looking at a painting that we sold at Sotheby's um, several years ago. Uh, it, there was quite a mystery surrounding this picture because uh, none, none of us had ever seen it before. It was hanging in a private collection in the United States, and when we saw it, we, it was, wasn't recorded in any of the books. Um, there was absolutely no published history on it, and so we had to piece it together. And what we think was that either Picasso sold it um, in 1941 to a little-known dealer named Pierre Cole, who was a surrealist dealer, um, and Picasso was was known to throw a bone out to dealers occasionally, especially people that he liked, and Pierre Cole may have been that person. Or Picasso might have given it to Dora Maar, who he was cheating on. Um, and Dora, because she needed money, may have sold it to Pierre Cole after the war, long after Picasso dumped her. Um, in any case, Picasso's pictures were making it out of his studios in dribs and drabs during the war, but by and large... He just kept painting and stockpiling them. And then it was after the war he had exhibitions that showed what he had done. Um, When the Americans liberated Paris, uh, Picasso became a celebrity because many GIs visited him at his studio. And um, photographers and photojournalists came to see him, and he became the symbol of uh, artist resistance in Europe. You're looking at a picture of Picasso with Lee Miller, who was uh, not only uh, the lover of Man Ray and and Roland Penrose and an artist in her own right. She was also a photojournalist for American magazines, and she herself went to Picasso's studio and took pictures of him. There he is looking out the window of his palatial home in Paris. He had a lot of real estate by this point because he, you know, he might have lived somewhat abstemiously in terms of present physical presentation, but boy, did he have real estate. And this is one of the, the great places that he purchased. Um, but so with the help of photojournalists and reports coming out of Paris that the great master Picasso stayed in Paris despite the Nazi occupation, he was looked upon as somewhat of a hero. 
Uh, you're looking at a picture now of Picasso right after the Second World War with a group of the intellectuals of Paris, including Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. And on Picasso's uh, right, so it would be our left, is a rather serious-looking woman. Her name is Louise Larisse, and she is the sister-in-law of Daniel Henry Kahnweiler, Picasso's original dealer. Now, as I said, during the First World War, Kahnweiler is forced to liquidate everything. After the First World War, he all of his gallery stock is sold off, and he spends the 20s buying it back and trying to reestablish himself. But sadly, um, with the rising of national socialism throughout Europe, Kahnweiler, who is not only German, he's Jewish, decide, he says, here we go again with my, my gallery and my business. I'm going to be you know, persecuted again. So he changes the name of his business to that of his Christian sister-in-law, Louise Larisse. And he opens up the gallery Louise Larisse. Um, during the Second World War. And with the help of Picasso, who is you know, stockpiling all of this stuff, um, really kind of forges the reputation of this gallery, Louise Larisse. The Nazis didn't know it was Kahnweiler, but people who were in the know who were looking for Picassos knew that Louise Larisse pretty much was Kahnweiler. So for the rest of his life, Picasso um, works with um, Kahnweiler. And Kahnweiler is the main dealer for Picasso in Europe. And also, he has satellites now positioned throughout the world, um, secondary dealers who will sell Picasso's art. One of those dealers was a woman in New York named Eleanor Sadenberg, who was selected by Kahnweiler to be the representative of Picasso in the United States. And meanwhile, Paul Rosenberg, who had been Picasso's dealer Throughout the 30s, sadly, he also had to flee to New York um, during the war. So Rosenberg is in New York as well, but Rosenberg is dealing with um, the stock that Picasso had created before the war. The new Picassos that were being done in the 40s and 50s and 60s were all handled, by and large, by Louise Larisse Gallery. So um, I'm showing you this slide of Picasso with his... Uh, I hate to use the term mistress because she's his partner um, and mother of two of his children, an artist, Francoise Gillot. This is a picture from the 19, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, Kahnweiler not only served as Picasso's dealer, but also Gillot's dealer. And so powerful was Picasso as uh, a marketing strategy that what Kahnweiler would do to his secondary dealers, he'd say, all right, I'll send you five or six Picassos, but you also have to take some Francois Gillots, you have to take some Massons, some other artists that wouldn't necessarily be top billing. Um, so a lot of artists kind of rode the coattails of Picasso in terms of the financial capital that they could bring at, 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 uh, for sale at a gallery. Um, Francoise Gillot was a painter long before she met Picasso, although she met Picasso when she was in her early 20s, but she was a painter for as, as long as she had wanted to be. And she had been making a reputation for herself. She met Picasso. She had uh, two children with him, as I said. She continued painting. Kahnweiler represented her. But when um, their relationship ended in the 50s, Gillot uh, went to write a tell-all memoir about her time with Picasso. And Picasso, who was extremely private and uh, guarded his reputation because it was so carefully crafted, his whole persona was so carefully crafted, he exploded. And he cut off ties with Gillot, and he told every single dealer that sold her paintings, if you ever sell a Francois Gillot painting, you're never going to get another painting from me. So pretty effectively, he, he squashed her career right there. 
Um, one of the dealers that uh, was very solicitous of Picasso in the United States was a man named Sam Coots. And here's a picture of Coots in Picasso's studio in the 50s. And the thing uh, to note about this is that Picasso never went to North America, ever. He very rarely left France. He went to Spain, he went to France, he went to England, but he never came to the United States. Um, so people, if they wanted, if dealers, especially if they were outside of the circle of Kahnweiler, would have to come to Picasso. They would come to France, they'd request a meeting, and they'd visit Picasso. Um, and Picasso loved to play the dealers off, each, off of each other. Sometimes he would invite three dealers at the same time to come see him at his studio, and he'd have them like waiting in a waiting room and would solicit one at a time, and the two remaining in the hallway would be there twiddling their thumbs nervously, wondering what the other one inside with Picasso was going to get. So Coots was one of those dealers who was oftentimes put in that position. Um, and another reason why dealers had to come to Picasso in Paris was he was not necessarily popular with mainstream dealers and mainstream collectors in the United States in the 1950s because he was an active communist. Um, Picasso espoused communism right after the Second World War. Um, he painted pictures symbolizing um, his admiration for the Communist Party. He wrote very corny poetry about the Communist Party. And he really alienated himself from a lot of the American collectors um, who were under the spell of Joe McCarthy, McCarthy. And McCarthy blackballed Picasso. So Picasso had no interest in coming to the United States. Um, so people came to him. And there are lots of archival photographs of people like um, Gary Cooper visiting Picasso in, in his studio. Um, and Picasso welcomed these people. He, he liked to have people around him. Um, and it was, you, you see many photographs of him during this time. This is another picture of Coots with his wife. Or Picasso's either like in a bathing suit or his underwear. I go either way. But very informally greeting people in his studio. He's surrounded by his objects. And again, it's this whole cultivation of persona of I don't care about money. You know, here I am just in my trunks and I'm surrounded by these pictures stacked up on the wall. Take a look around. Um, that is not to say, though, that he was not, he did not care about um, money and wealth. Um, he, as I said, he had an enormous amount of real estate um, in very luxurious locations. This is a picture of him standing in one of his homes, La Californie, surrounded by um, some of the paintings he was doing at the time. Uh, he was known not to be... Some, you know, it, it depends on who you talk to. Some of his descendants say, oh, he was very generous. Others, um, like his granddaughter Marina Picasso, say he definitely was not generous. Um, but he had, a lot of, he had a lot of pictures, and oftentimes he would barter with his pictures. There are anecdotes of him taking people out to dinner, and uh, instead of paying the bill, he'd do a little doodle on a napkin and give it to the... the Mater Dei. And I mean, it's some, somewhat infuriating things. And also his personal assistant, there was one anecdote that Francoise Gillot tells in her memoir, his personal assistant at the end of the day would go through the trash to make sure that any of Picasso's little doodles or scribbles were shredded because he didn't want people picking through the garbage for his pictures. Um, but there were elements of generosity, and um, this is an example of one. The city of, this is a sculpture that was commissioned um, by the city of Chicago, 
And uh, Picasso, they were going to pay sh- Picasso an exorbitant fee for this sculpture. And Picasso um, turned down uh, the money at the end and said, this is my gift to the people of the city of Chicago. Again, he n- never came to the United States. He had little hand in actually creating this mammoth sculpture. Um, he pretty much he just ex- gave them his, his maquette and his idea. And um, a, a steel manufacturer in the United States actually constructed this work. But this was one of his, his great gifts. Um, and some of his best art he actually kept for himself. He, in fact, most of the pictures that are in the exhibition that you're seeing today were largely pictures that Picasso didn't want to give up. They just remained in his family until his, remained in his collection and in his vaults and his various homes until his death, and they were divvied up among his children and, or donated to the great Picasso Museum in France. Um, so here's a picture of Picasso seated with his second wife, uh, Jacqueline Roque, and in the background are some sculptures, one of which my colleague Molly Ott will be talking about later on. But again, these are his greatest works he decides to live with. He has really no need towards the end of his life to sell his pictures, but he knows that his, his great dealers have a great need to sell his pictures because um, he is their livelihood, and he loves that power. Um, he loves kind of pitting them against each other, and he was incredibly amused by the stress that he could create amongst his dealers. Um, you can see now, this is a picture that we sold a few years ago at Sotheby's, and I'm showing you this because I want you to look at the back of the picture. I'm showing you two slides, the front and the back. On the back of the picture, you can see Picasso preparing um, his canvases for Louise Larice, or Conviler, in other words. Um, he very uh, quickly scrawls the, name, the date that he signed the picture on the back. You can see the drip marks. Let's see drip marks of his, he's just slapdash putting on a date. And then right over here, you have your Louise Larice label. Oftentimes, um, if he knew which dealer he was going to give a picture to, he would write like a K for Conviola on the stretcher. But so he had his stock of pictures, and he did cooperate with his dealers because, again, they were still, you know, helping him to establish his reputation as and maintain his reputation as the greatest living artist of the 20th century. Um, I'm showing you this picture because this was done um, in the 1930s. It was a Picasso that wasn't signed Picasso at first. It was actually dedicated to Paul Rosenberg. But one day Paul Rosenberg said, um, I'd like to sell this picture, so could you erase the dedication? And he did, and he just wrote Picasso on it. Picasso didn't really sign any of his pictures unless his dealers wanted him to. So oftentimes we have pictures um, that have later signatures. And the reason why the signatures are later is because Picasso's dealers wanted to sell them and they'd take them back to Picasso Studios like often decades later and they'd say, could you just put a signature on it because it will make the picture so much more marketable. And it does. It even does today. Now this is an interesting picture because this has a, a signature way up in the corner um, that is signed with his wife's nail polish. I mean, you can just, he's phoning it in at this point. He's not even really that concerned. He's, you know, he knows his dealers need uh, signatures. It makes the picture more marketable. So he signs them and he, he uses whatever means. And it's, he's very humorous. He knows what he's doing and he's really on top of it. So it's, you, you see these little private jokes occasionally. And, and I think using your wife's nail polish to sign a picture that ultimately makes, you know, mil- millions upon millions of dollars, in this case, um, around $17 million, uh, is, is quite entertaining. 
so at the time of, shortly before Picasso's death in 1973, there were two exhibitions staged um, at the Palace of the Popes in Avignon that Picasso himself had a large part in organizing in the early 70s. And again, exhibiting in the Palace of the Popes is a grand gesture um, towards your own, own importance. So for Picasso, this was kind of his, his grand goodbye. He was in, in his 90s, his health was faltering, and he was kind of looking at this as his moment to his great uh, uh, farewell. Uh, so these exhibitions... Um, there were two of them, were largely uh, comprised of very large pictures that he had been working on in the 60s and the early 70s. None of them had signatures. In fact, the picture that I just showed you was in one of these exhibitions in the Palace of the Popes. But soon after you know, the, the exhibition was taken down, he signed all of them, or many of them, and gave them to his dealers to sell. Um, now, when Picasso died, it's a very interesting story. He had a lot... He had children, he had grandchildren, he had lots of heirs, he had had affairs, so there were lots of people in his life who now were faced with this enormous stockpile of art. Um, one of them was his granddaughter, Marina Picasso, who you see her there in the center, posing with the picture of her grandmother, Olga Koklova. And Marina uh, was very interesting because her share of the Picasso estate that she received, she decided to sell off through the help of a dealer named uh, Jan Kruger. And the proceeds of those sales went to an orphanage that she established. Um, and she devoted her life to helping orphans around the world, and she adopted many children. And so a lot of the, the great masterpieces that Picasso had kept for himself, squirreled away in his palatial homes, she ended up putting to very good charitable use. You're looking at a plaster that's at the Nasher Foundation, and this is one of the plasters that was used by Picasso and Vollard at the time that Picasso was establishing his reputation early on. Um, now back to Boy with a Pipe. Um, very interestingly, again, so Picasso painted this one. His, he, wasn't, he wasn't rich by any means, but it's very interesting to see what ends up happening to Boy with a Pipe. Um, it sells at Sotheby's in 2004. Um, at the time, it was the highest paid price for any work of art at auction. Um, there are some of my colleagues posing with it during the sale. And, you know, a question to ask, would Picasso today ever imagine the prices that his pictures would bring? And my, my answer to that, I think, is yes, of course he would. He was incredibly full of himself. He knew, um, sorry, he knew that he wanted to establish himself as one of the greatest artists of all time. He was richer than any, but any other living artist during his lifetime, and it would not have been a surprise to himself that uh, he would continue to be one of the most expensive artists on the market today. And with that, I'm going to turn over to my colleague, Molly Ambler. Part two, coming your way. Well, good evening. So happy to see you all tonight. Um, Elizabeth and I are really thrilled to be here at the AGO. 
And I'd like to follow up on Elizabeth's presentation on Picasso's market during his own lifetime and discuss with you the present-day market for Picasso's works, which is incredibly robust, I'm happy to say. Um, I thought we'd start by showing you the top five prices for any works of art ever achieved in public sale. And this can function as a bit of a quiz because three of these works will be familiar to you from Elizabeth's talk. Um, on the far left, we see Edvard Munch's Scream, which we just sold at Sotheby's New York for $119 million last month. Um, on the far right, we see Alberto Giacometti's Walking Man, which was sold in 2010 for just over $106 million. And that work is the top price ever paid for a sculpture still. And then the three works in the center are all Pablo Picasso's. And this is really extraordinary to have one artist be so dominant at the very highest high end of the marketplace. So to go into more detail, you'll all recognize this picture, Boy with a Pipe, 1905, the Rose Period. This is nude, green leaves, and bust, and features Picasso's lover, Marie-Thérèse Walter, there, dreaming at the lower left portion of the picture. And Dora Maar with a cat. The cat is just by her chin there. It's a little tough to see a teeny tiny cat. <laughs> Charming. For 95 million. Only 95 million. So you may be thinking that these three works are not typical Picassos and that they represent probably the very top end of the marketplace, and you would certainly be right about that. But interestingly, when I looked at all of the Picassos offered at auction in the last 10 years, and I took the average of the top prices achieved in those last 10 years, the number was rather staggering, $49 million. And works painted in five different decades of Picasso's life were represented in that list. And the extraordinary selling record of Picasso and the diversity of the works at the top end of the market make him the most consistently sought after of any artist actively traded at the top of the art market today. Picasso's breadth as an artist is unmatched. The three works we just saw are examples of this. His top prices come from three distinct periods of his career, unlike some of the other most sought-after artists like Andy Warhol or Jackson Pollock. There really is no one big moment that the market is most actively seeking in Picasso. He helped to find numerous modern art movements, including, of course, Cubism and Neoclassicism, but he always stayed true to his own vision and his own overarching themes, most famously female beauty, um, including so many of the most arresting portraits, which were so often inspired by his lovers, partners, women friends. <laughs> so the artist was extremely prolific throughout his life. Along with close relationships with numerous critics and dealers, as we've heard, Picasso worked with an art critic and a publisher named Christian Zervos, and he created a definitive catalog raisonné of his works, beginning the project in 1932, and it ultimately stretched to 33 large bound volumes full of nothing but Picassos. And these volumes are really fascinating to look through because they make clear that Picasso worked on multiple drawings and paintings every single day. Picasso leads the market for modern art today and influenced and challenged the artists around him, but he also influenced nearly every important artist that followed him too. And this makes him irresistible to today's collectors. He transcended the movements of his own time, and his market is really functioning independently today of any other artist as well. 
So each year, thousands of works by Picasso are sold, whether prints, ceramics, oil paintings, drawings, just a hugely wide array of objects. And it's possible to find Picasso selling in a surprising range of prices. So I thought maybe tonight I should share with you some of that variety of his production, as well as some prices. So here I'd like to share with you one of the major works we sold at Sotheby's this past November, which is a magnificent oil painting from 1967 titled Lobad, or Serenade. This work broke the record for a Picasso painted after 1955 and is emblematic of the surge in interest in Picasso's late period, uh, which has really occurred in the last 10 years or so. And one important spur to this increased market attention for the late period was a show at the Gagosian Gallery in New York in 2009 called Musketeers. And it caused great sensation when it was put up um, in New York. It was curated by John Richardson, the friend and biography of the artist. And the market expressed instant enthusiasm for these pictures. There were about 90 works in the show. And Lobad was one of the works seen in the exhibition catalog. I don't know if you can see it here. Um, It's an absolutely enormous picture, which gives you a sense that many of the works Picasso was painting at this late date are of a big, impressive scale. Here is a picture of the work being offered at Sotheby's next to some human-sized humans, so you can see just how large it is. It's two meters in length. The impressive scale of the picture is matched by the raw and energetic brushwork that the artist used, which is particularly amazing for the artist who was about to celebrate his 85th birthday when he painted this works and the others that you saw in the slide of his, um, his home. There were actually bristles from the brush that were embedded in this enormous canvas. So emphatic was his painting style when he made this work. The female figure who you can see on the left side of the work, has a strong resemblance to his last great love, Jacqueline Roque. And her large almond-shaped eyes inspired the artist in numerous works, including Lobad. So here she is with Picasso. He met her actually at a, a pottery factory where he was working in the 50s. And here they are together embracing at La Californie, the studio that Elizabeth showed as well. Here you see um, some masks and some bronzes the artist made, as well as a number of musical instruments. And you just get a sense that it's a a wonderful place of fun as well as, as artistic inspiration. Here's our picture again. So the figure of the flute player in this work is clearly a sort of self-portrait. In contrast to the advanced age of the artist at the date of the picture, the flute player here is very young and virile, and the twisting and dynamic form fills the right-hand side of the canvas. The serenade's theme is a charming one and a very romantic vision of the artist together with his lover. But it's also more than that. It's it's taking a universal theme that reappears across centuries of European art. Picasso was clearly reflecting in his old age on his place, not just among the great artists of the 20th century, but also on his legacy within the whole pantheon of Western art history. And here we have two slightly overly vibrant slides. Of, um, on the upper portion, you'll see an Ang painting called The Odaliskan Slave, which is in the Walters Gallery of Baltimore. And at lower right, you have a Titian of Venus being serenaded by a young gent, which is in the collection of the Prado in Madrid. 
So Lobod's appearance as a black and white image in the Gagosian Musketeer show catalog led to a reappraisal of the work and eventually to its sale at Sotheby's this November. It was hanging in a private North American collection from the time it was last on the market in 1979 until this sale in November. And here's our sale room. We typically have about 1,000 people who come to the sales in addition to all of the press. Those are all of my colleagues ranked there under the image of the picture, which is a very exciting kind of event, our sales. So the owner purchased this work for 49,000 pounds in a 1979 sale in London. And if you adjust for inflation, that comes to about 330,000 US dollars. So looking at the strong recent sales for the artist's late period and the extremely high quality level of the painting, we put a pre-sale estimate on this work of 18 to 25 million dollars. And with our global marketing campaign and shipping the painting to Hong Kong and London and viewings in New York, the, painted, the painting ended up selling for just over $23 million. So even adjusted for inflation, this is about 70 times the 1979 purchase price. For some context, in the same period of time between 1979 and 2012, the Dow Jones index increased by a factor of 15 times. So, from an investment standpoint, Picasso is certainly the better bet. <laughs> Best of all, the owners were able to enjoy this stellar rate of appreciation while the work hung in their home for three decades. So, Picasso's market is so vast and so active because he was an innovator and a nearly obsessive creator of art almost every day. He never became stuck in a single creative phase or repeated earlier successes, as so many artists have done before him. And his paintings and drawings, as you saw in the image Elizabeth showed of the back of one of the pictures, are often dated very precisely to the day he made them, and many are marked with Roman numerals, where he wanted to indicate which version of a subject he might be working on. So an example of that is um, the, the picture we sold, you'll see on the upper right there. These are two other serenade scenes, again, all of them enormous in scale, which the artist made during a single week in the month of June in 1967. So the massive levels of energy really never seemed to flag for Picasso despite advancing years. Um, the artist is most famous, of course, as a painter in oil, but his skill as a draftsman, printmaker, and sculptor cannot be overlooked. He mastered all of these media, and we have been privileged at Sotheby's to handle some fascinating works for sale in recent years. And here we have a favorite of mine, La Grue, or The Crane. Picasso did lots of experimenting with three-dimensional media in the 50s, and he created this elegant assemblage in the form of a crane from a shovel, which makes up the tail, a piece of twisted wicker, couldn't tell you where that is, two forks, a gas spigot, screw nuts, and a spike. So he set these found objects in plaster, and then the figure was cast in bronze in an addition of four, and then hand-painted by the artist. All those white lines are him having painted the, the final bronze. The resulting bronzes were each painted with unique patterns of white stripes and black bands. And according to Francois Gillot, who he was living with at the time, it was finding the shovel which formed the tail feathers that gave Picasso the idea of making the crane. Now, I wish every time I found a shovel... <laughs> I was inspired to make a gorgeous crane, but it isn't so. So we sold this work in 2008, as you'll see, for over $19 million from a pre-sale estimate of 10 to $15 million. 
And there are three others out there. In the 50s, Picasso also began by making ceramics. And one of the forms he explored repeatedly was the ibu, or owl, shown here in terracotta from 55. This work was a number of owl forms which, like the crane, Picasso hand-painted, as you can see in the photo of the artist with a different version of the work on the right-hand side here. These ceramics were inspired in part by a pet that Picasso and Francoise found injured and then moved with them from Antibes to Paris, nursing its leg back to health while the owl repeatedly bit Picasso on the fingers. And he used this bird for a model. There he is with his adorable pet. (laughs) So we estimated this ceramic form when it was offered in 2007, at seven to nine hundred thousand dollars U.S., and it sold for just over a million dollars. Going back to an earlier period of the artist's career, this spring we broke the record for a work on paper that used as its basis an etching by the artist. Picasso made prints throughout his long career, and this bather figure is executed in gouache which is sort of between watercolor and oil, a sort of thin-down oil. Underneath the layer of gouache, the artist's own er earlier etching is visible. So here, on the right-hand side, we can see the original print. Um, And it had two bathers in it. So when the artist reworked it, he painted the gal on the right-hand side out of the composition. We offered this work in May from the Forstman collection and estimated it at seven to 900,000, and it sold for just over $2.3 million. And it's also worth mentioning that Picasso made hundreds of prints in his career, um, and those are more typically priced in the thousands than the millions, so one of the um, more variable aspects of his production in terms of prices. Though painted 30 years before Lobod, this work also makes clear Picasso's devotion to the works of Ang. And here is an odalisque by Ang, which is in the collection of the Louvre, and it exerted a very strong influence on our bather here, um, which Picasso reworked and flipped the sitter backward from the original position. Picasso's renowned for his skill as a draftsman as well, and we sold this extraordinary example of his drawing technique in 2010, um, The Repose of the Sculptor. This work was done in 1933, and it was made in Bois-Jaloupe at, at, at a home that the artist shared with Marie-Thérèse Walter. Picasso refers to her indirectly in the present work by making a sculpted bust visible on the right side, which resembles closely her profile. And her profile appears repeatedly in works he made during their love affair in the 30s. Picasso's depicting himself in the role of a strong and handsome sculptor with a beard, leaning back to admire his lovely creation. We offered the work in 2010 in a sale in Paris. The estimate was around 500 to 700,000 US dollars. It drew enormous, it was 7 by 10 inches, by the way, very portable. It ended up selling for $4.6 million, and there were more than 10 bidders very actively competing quite fiercely to own this work. And here we have the lovely Francoise again. Her photograph by Robert Doineau is on the left, and a drawing of her here on the right. This 1945 portrait of Francoise was another sumptuous drawing offered from the same distinguished collection as the last work. It has a wonderful freshness to it. 
And although it's done in shades of gray and black, the viewer can see in this work that the sitter has very dramatic and beautiful eyes. In fact, it's true in life as well as in this drawing that the sitter's eyes are of two different colors. And we priced this before the sale at three hundred and fifty to four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and it sold for just over a million point five. I'd like to end with another work from the late period of the artist's career, a whimsical sketch in colored crayons. We just sold this last month in our sale in New York. And what we have here is a dedication page of an illustrated book by Douglas Cooper, titled Dejeuner, as you'll see printed there on the surface. Picasso's drawn this sketch incorporating figures that he used repeatedly to explore the theme of Edouard Manet's seminal painting, Dejeuner sur l'herbe, of 1863. And here is that painting in the collection of the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Now, this painting caused a huge scandal with the public and critics alike when it was painted, and it was refused from the Salon that year. It was shown instead at the Salon des Refusés, and a critical debate followed, which was a watershed moment in the course of modern art history. So the painting was really important to Picasso, and he returned to it again and again and reinterpreted the themes within it. Picasso painted and drew scenes on the theme over 60 times over a period of at least a decade, and here are several examples of that. The upper right is a lino cut, a type of print, and the other three are all oil paintings. He also made tapestries um, based on the same theme. And they often have the two nude women who are posing with the clothed men in a contemporary setting, which is what so upset the critics um, about the Manet. In this crayon sketch, which was done 99 years after Manet exhibited the original painting, the two men have now also been transformed into nudes, which is sort of fun, and are only identifiable as part of the theme series by their pipe and walking stick. Picasso dedicated the drawing to a friend, and we offered this work in our sale last month bound inside the original volume in which Picasso made his sketch and dedication. Um, this drawing carried an estimate of forty dollars to $60,000 and sold amidst competition for 104000 So I hope this presentation has given you a sense of the breadth of the works by Picasso that appear on the market today and makes clear how the most important artist of the 20th century is such a dominant force in the international art market 40 years after his death. So thank you for the welcome, and Elizabeth and I would love to hear your questions. We have two handheld microphones either side. We are recording this talk to podcast from our website, so it helps us if we can record the questions as well as the answers. So does anybody have a question? It's, hi. It seems that you've consistently underestimated the values. Do you want to comment on that? <laughs> great question. That is a great, great question. question. Um, you know... Oh, I shouldn't have done it. Okay. Um, our auction estimates, there's a strategy behind them. And when we uh, assign an auction estimate, we try to be somewhat on the conservative side. We don't want to completely misrepresent the work, but we want to estimate it based on what comparable works have achieved in the past. But also, we don't want to scare away bidders. Oftentimes, a work that we know has great potential will we'll talk the consigner into putting a, a conservative estimate on it, so that way, a fierce competition will break out in the sale room. When an estimate is pushed, 
Um, and uh, people who are, are buying at this level oftentimes are, uh, they're either dealers or they're employing um, art advisors or they're very savvy themselves. And they're doing a lot of research and people can tell when an estimate is pushed and so they'll shy away from bidding on it. And uh, it's, There's a psychology to the auction process and so we are there to dangle the meat and inspire everybody to bite. And so a low estimate makes it look accessible and when you're in the moment of the frenzy of bidding, you lose your head sometimes and the bidding and the resulting price can far exceed the estimate, which is, which is what happened in this case. And also in our pre-sale promotion, we sometimes take objects to collectors' homes. We explain to them why the work is worth so much more than the estimate. So it's part of the marketing strategy to have the estimates be conservative. This is a two-part question. But the Stein that was mentioned earlier, is she an American? Yes. Gertrude Stein, Gertrude yes. Gertrude Stein. And yes. well, secondly, then, there was, there was a big auction coming up with her and her sister's work, or either it, it may have already happened. Well, there's been a big, important exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art of the works from the Stein collection. I'm not sure about that's an auction. Is maybe that's, yeah. yep. Was it successful? It wasn't a sale. It's an it's an exhibition at the Metropolitan, and it's been I traveling. Mean, it's been yeah, it's very incredibly widely received. Well received, yeah. Uh, okay. we, we'd like to record the question, though. Okay. Sure. Uh, in your initial talk, in that you mentioned the pricing, but you didn't say if Picasso set the prices, or did he set the prices with the dealers? Oh. That's a good question. It, I think it depended on who he was working with at the time. In the beginning, he had um, very little say, and he just did what his dealers were telling him to do. He really let his dealers guide him, but of course, he had final veto on what, um, what they could offer something for. So it was a collaborative effort, more so than it is, I think, with artists today. You, there are some big-time gallerists in New York who they have a standard commission and they, may, they call the shots and the artist kind of signs over their rights. But with Picasso, these dealers were so dependent on him that you know, they came with their financial plan and he could either say yes or no. So it, it, was, it was much more collaborative than I think we're led to believe. But, you know, the, the dealers are on top of the market. They know how much to ask for. They know how much not to, or they know what, when to stop in pricing. And Picasso um, left that business to them. He knew that they would make him money, and he had oodles of it, and it was working. So I think he, he stood back for the most part in letting them assign the prices. just finished reading a book on Barnes and his collecting, and he has some Picassos. Do you have any knowledge of how the dealers accepted or rejected him? Because he, Dr. He, Barnes? Or, uh, rejected, just say that again, yeah. rejected whom? Uh, Albert Barnes, when he was doing his right. collecting, because he became a little abrasive from time oh, yes. to time. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I, I mean, he had a... He had a, a a fiery reputation, and he, but he did work with dealers um, very closely, as a matter of fact, and he bought many of his pictures um, from Paul Rosenberg. Uh, he, worked, he worked closely um, with, I 
think. I'm not really up on my Barnes history, but he did rely on the advice of dealers, but he also very clearly gave dealers um, instructions on what he wanted and how much he was going to pay for things. Do you think he would have had personal contact with Picasso? Barnes? Um, given, I, you know, I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I don't think so. I know he had personal Matisse. contact with Matisse, yeah. <laughs> certainly, um, but not so much with Picasso. I think they were both, you know, I don't think Barnes uh, would have gone to Picasso's studio. Picasso made himself reserved enough that Barnes wouldn't have extended the effort, I don't think. Well, first off, thank you. It's an excellent presentation and enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, a friend of mine's come across a sketch uh, which he'd like to get uh, authenticated. Uh, as far as Providence goes, he's investigating it right now. He's gone through the internet. There's been various companies which have suggested it's of the time period, it's of the style, it's of everything else, but he wants to take it to the next step. What would you recommend as far as a good next step for him? Well, send us a photo. <laughs> See you after. Very good. <laughs> um, no, we, we, we look at, at objects all day long. It's part of the joy of our job is to give advice. And, of course, we want everything that's shown to us to turn out to be um, a real work that's a potential candidate for sale. So um, we do research. We use our library. We use um, price records to come up with what we think is the right estimate and explain our strategy and are very happy to comment. Um, we don't authenticate works of art, but we do sell works with a guarantee that they are authentic and you can get your money back in a certain period of time, which is the you know conditions of sale and guarantee of authorship. So um, that's how we generally do it. We get information, history of ownership, and images. Thanks. One more question. Um, he was so prolific, and I would have thought being an economist that would hurt values, not help them, and obviously in this case it hasn't. Could you want to comment on how that generally works and why he's an exception, or is he an exception? Um, you know, Picasso and his dealers uh, did not want to flood the market. He was prolific. You're very. That's a very good question. And there was concern at certain points expressed between Conviola and Picasso, especially around the time that Picasso was um, ending his relationship with his first wife, Olga Koklova. He never divorced Olga because he knew that she would be entitled to half of his estate by French law. And she. he also knew that she would sell all the pictures. So... Conviler was saying, hold your horses, Picasso. Don't divorce her because she's going to sell those pictures. She's going to flood the market. Hold back. And he never divorced her. He, he drove her crazy for the rest of her life, stringing her along. He never divorced her. And she held, I mean, she didn't get the pictures. Yet that's right. She died in the 60s. So he, you know, he, he kept a lot of his great works. And every now and again, you know, trickles would fall out. That's why all these dealers were really chomping at the bit to get a hold of a picture. So they weren't really flooding the market. He had reserves. There's one very well-known book that we um, use oftentimes in cataloging these pictures. It's called Picasso's Picassos by David Douglas Duncan. And Duncan was a, he's a war photographer who happened to befriend Picasso after the Second World War and went to his house and said, what are the, all these pictures that I've never seen before? 
And in fact, they were these masterpieces, many of which you see in this exhibition here. And Duncan photographed all of them and published this book called Picasso's Picassos, and they were never before seen. So the Picassos that were sold during his lifetime, because it was such a controlled um, uh, a presentation to the marketplace that really did help in establishing his great fortune. So thank you for asking that question. Hi. Um, how did Gilo's uh, career uh, resuscitate itself, and when did it happen? It did, and sadly. You know, Francoise Gilo, a uh, fascinating person. She's still alive. Um, right now at Gagosian Gallery in New York, there's an exhibition called Picasso and Gilo, and there are pictures of Picasso's and Francoise Gilo's during the time of their, their partnership. Um, Gillot's career sadly did not revive itself. When I, I, I had the privilege of meeting her a few weeks ago, and she told me that her works are exhibited in galleries in Hungary. Her teacher, um, before she met Picasso, was a Hungarian painter, so there are Hungarian dealers that represent her. Um, but what happened with Gillot was really fascinating. She was the only person to leave Picasso. She came to the United States, and she met Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine. She married Jonas Salk. And, um, you know, she still painted. She still paints today, and she's in her 90s. And her daughter Paloma really supports and tries to promote uh, her mother's work. Um, but Francoise, uh, she told me that whenever her pictures come up at auction, they, they rarely do. She tries to buy them back. I mean, she doesn't really have that much need for money herself, but painting for her, she says it, it's her life. It's, it's like breathing. Um, so did she actively really try to sell her pictures? I don't necessarily know that. I mean, Picasso pretty much killed her her financial success in terms of living off of her artwork. But when you talk to her, she does not want to talk about Picasso's art. She wants to talk about her own. She wants to talk about Matisse. She really liked Matisse. She liked Kandinsky. Um, she liked Lempika. So it's very interesting. But, uh, yeah, he, he did her in in terms of her own success in the commercial art world. How careful do you have to be about fakes on the art market for Picasso? Um, thinking particularly prints, but are there others as well? Um, there are fakes um, of every sort after Pablo Picasso. I've seen a, a painting on the side of a suitcase. That was a special day. Um, <laughs> but I would say almost more than any other artist, aside from Gain Gainsborough's Blue Boy, another big favorite that comes in the mail constantly, um, Picasso may be the, the top in terms of fakes, too. So establishing authenticity of the works that we sell is a major part of what we do all day, every day. Um, several of the artist's children are involved in authenticating works that were not published in this Christian Zervos catalog, Raisonne, that I mentioned. And that was 33 volumes worth, so there's an awful lot of material published in those books. But most of Picasso's own Paintings by Picasso were not included in that that volume either. So, um, you know, these works still come up all the time, fresh works that have not been seen for many years, and we rely heavily on on literature and the resources that we have, but also on both Claude and Maya Picasso to uh, like paintings, fakes in every medium. Um, absolutely, yes, silver plates, and um, he he allowed his designs to be used in the making of silver plates and additions, gold medallions. There are um, Murano glass vases, which he said, sure, you know, I like the idea of that. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so 
you know, these works have to be kind of tracked down and kept track of, and, and there are a lot of um, fakes. You know, fakes were also made during Picasso's lifetime, and in one of his biographies, I forget which one, but um, there's an anecdote that talks about um, a dealer bringing a collector to Picasso's studio, and the collector had a work by Picasso, and Picasso, and he wanted a signature. And Picasso said, oh, no, I can't. That's fake. That's fake. And the, and the collector was like beside himself because he invested all this money in, in this Picasso. He thought he could sell it for lots and lots of money. And the collector went away and then dug up all this paperwork and actually found that this was <laughs> handled by Kahnweiler. So he goes back to Picasso and he says, you know, I found this paperwork. I bought this through Kahnweiler. And Picasso says, oh, okay, that's a fake Picasso done by me. And then he signed it. So, I mean, he couldn't even tell. It's just... They were being faked during his lifetime, too. And this practice he had of sometimes dating works decades later is, is also something that can be quite a challenge for us, because certainly works that are real Picassos can sometimes have a false signature put on by someone else who realizes the work is real and would be worth more with a signature. So, you know... That happens as well, and then you have the question of whether you remove the signature or what exactly should happen with that. So it's uh, tricky. I believe he has the most stolen art as well, the highest numbers of pieces of stolen art. That wouldn't surprise me. So do you have, are you ever approached by, with pieces of art that you know to be stolen? And Funny you should not, indeed I guess, (laughs) yes. You know, there's an organization um, internationally called the Art Loss Register, and if you you are a collector and your art is stolen, please contact the Art Loss Register, register your work with the Art Loss Register. Um, So we check everything that we sell with the Art Loss Register and make sure that it's not on their database. There was one Picasso I was directly involved with. I went to, um, uh, a fellow had died, I went to his house after his death, and he had a lot of pictures, and I had a list of pictures that I was expecting to see, and one of those pictures wasn't there. It was a small Picasso. Um, and so, anyway, months later, uh, somebody came to uh, Sotheby's, dropped in a walk-in, what we call them, um, and I was asked to meet with the walk-in, and this walk-in shows me this Picasso, and I said, why does that look so familiar? And I said, wait a moment here. And I went back to my desk, and I saw that it was that Picasso from my list that was missing from the house that had since been reported as stolen. So I called the FBI, and I'm stalling this guy who's outside. Um, And indeed, when the house was being um, cleaned up after the death of this guy who lived by himself, one of the the cleaners or the movers um, took the picture and uh, put it in his bag. I mean, it was just the stupidest, sloppiest thing you could possibly have done. And he passed it along to several people, and, and after like a chain of like three or four people, it got to me because some dealer, not knowing the origin of this picture, came to Sotheby's, wanted to get an estimate. And meanwhile, it was just, I mean, it was dumb luck that I happened to be the one with this random list several months ago, and I recognized that this was the stolen Picasso. But anyway, so yes, yes, occasionally people will bring us something stolen, but our job is to do as much provenance research, as much title clearance as we possibly, possibly can. And if something is put in our catalog and we find out after the catalog goes to press that it's stolen, then we hold it and we don't sell it. And until that title claim is resolved, we will not sell it. We won't release it. Funnily enough, the day we were having the Picassos delivered to the exhibition, of course, high, high security. And none of us in the gallery are supposed to know when that's happening, but there are a few signs. We had Josh Nelman, who'd written a book called Hot Art, 
talking about art theft. And I just was looking at the audience, very interesting audience who came from that, very great questions. And I was thinking, if Uh, only they knew, have they noticed the vast number of security in in the back parking lot? I had one other interesting stolen art uh, story from Sotheby's, and that is that a colleague of ours was asked by the Antique Roadshow to talk about a stolen artwork that he knew of or had been involved with. So he went on and discussed um, a Rufino Tamayo painting, Latin American painting, which had been stolen from a collection in Texas. Um, one of the viewers of that Roadshow program was a very horrified, innocent person on the Upper West Side who had picked up that very painting as it was leaning against a dumpster, um, <laughs> you know, in front of the Dakota yeah. <laughs> on the Upper West Side. So she came forward to Sotheby's with the painting based on this antique roadshow piece, and um, we ended up selling it, and it was an incredible um, sort of success story, but quite a long, circuitous route for this painting. The artworks have long lives. Yes, they do. Uh, I have two unrelated questions. One to get back to the dealers. Where when he you? did sell a work to a dealer, uh, who made more money on it, Picasso himself or the dealer? And secondly, why did he not sign so many of his works? Um, it depended on what his contract was with the dealer. I mean, I think ultimately, uh, with many dealers, it's a 50-50 split. I'm not sure what um, the commissions were. His contracts were renegotiated all the time, so I really can't answer that with great um, clarity, or I, I can't give you a precise um, figure at any one time. Um, why did he not sign many of his works? Most artists don't sign their works until they're actually going to sell them, until they're actually going to leave the studio. And uh, especially towards the end of his life, when he was not really looking to sell, he had no need to sell, people would just come to him. Um, he didn't, you know, he would sign upon request. Um, you'll see a lot, like, uh, there are several artists, actually. I mean, if you think about, uh, I'm trying to think, Cezanne, a lot of his works were unsigned. It's just... A signature is something that adds value, like hands down. So an artist is signing something because they want to put their stamp on it before it goes out into the world. So if Picasso didn't plan on sending off anything out into the world, or if his dealer sold something before he had the chance to sign it, it went off into the world without a signature. Are there any other questions? Yeah. Did any of Picasso's works vanish during the war, either destroyed in bombing or fires or something, or uh, uh, just stolen by the Nazis, oh, or, or, or just vanished completely? Absolutely, absolutely. There were, um, you know, I, certainly there's a, a list, now there's a whole profession devoted to Nazi war loot, provenance research, and Picasso's most definitely were stolen in Paris and um, throughout Europe. In fact, Paul Rosenberg, Picasso's dealer, he had um, holdings in three different locations. Two of those locations were looted by the Nazis, and his paintings are turning up even now. Paul Rosenberg's daughter-in-law, Elaine Rosenberg, who lives in New York, is very active in trying to get these paintings back, um, including several Picassos that are seen in in, um, very many archival photographs of... uh, in Hitler's uh, storage bunkers where Hitler was amassing a great collection of pictures. But um, certainly there were works that were looted that were by Picasso and and works that suffered damage during wartime and other times during Picasso's life. 
you, you mentioned in your comments the Marcus reappraisal of late Picasso's uh, in a very favorable direction. Have there been, from a market standpoint, have there been other reappraisals of the period, different, uh, Picasso's different periods, or is it yes. the market likes? You know, if we were giving a talk on the market for Picasso and the date was 1990, tonight in this room, um, the top prices at that period in time were only the early works, the blue period, the rose period. Um, those were the pictures that were the most sought after by the marketplace then without any question. Um, so I would say, you know, there's a great breadth now to what the market is searching for. The late pictures have been some of the top prices achieved in the last few years. Um, but also I would say uh, the 19, early 1930s, yeah. when you say is the other big victor at the moment That's in the market's right. eyes. That's right. Uh, <laughs> The 1930s, 1932 is kind of the golden year for Picasso right now. That's the year that he painted all of these very sexy portraits of his um, his child bride, who he never married, Marie Therese, um, a young woman who he was having an affair with and fathered a child with while he was married to Olga. And he did all of these incredibly erotic portraits of Marie Therese, 1931, 1932, that he debuted at that exhibition I spoke about a bit in Zurich and in Paris. Um, later that year, and it was it was when Olga went to that exhibition, and she said, "Who's that woman? That's not me." And all those pictures that she was bouncing clued. a beach ball, not right? Me. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. So right now, 1932 Picassos, including That's yeah, is it, they're probably the ones that are the hottest and getting the most attention right now. Thank you. There was one somewhere over there earlier. Thank you very much for your wonderful talk, both of you. Um, I wondered at the time of his death what was the value of his estate and who were the beneficiaries? Oh, <laughs> a loaded question. I'm not sure what the value of his estate was. A lot of money. And uh, let, me, let me tell you the beneficiaries that I know of from the photographs that I've seen. It would be Marina. Um, his, sadly, Marina's brother, Pablito, had committed suicide because um, he wasn't able to go to Picasso's funeral. I mean, it, it, it was a really tragic, tragic event in the Picasso family lifetime. Um, Paloma, the jewelry designer, her brother, Claude, uh, Bernard, who was another son of Picasso's son, pa Paolo, um, Maya Picasso, Diana Picasso, um, and her two brothers, I'm not sure who else. Marina's children, who she adopted, um, or was no, she hadn't started adopting at that point. Um, but uh, there were there was a large family, and they all had to come to some to sort of agreement. It was worth a lot of money, a lot of money. They all knew it. It was probably one of the most um, talked about. Um, I don't know what the legal term is, settlements after the estate. Many lawyers in the audience know this better than I do. But anyway, um, it all came to a very peaceful resolution, and the, the, the lion's share of his estate um, went to establishing the museums in his name. Yeah, I just have two questions. I just want to know if he was a collector of other artists' work and was inspired by other artists. And the second question is, did he keep a catalog of all the work that he did? That way people, you know, know what he did and, you know, that he 
That way people don't mix up what he did and what other people did, you know, the work that he collected. Um, he was a collector of other artists. He, he really liked Renoir. He had Renoirs. He collected um, his great rival Matisse. Oftentimes he traded pictures with Matisse. Um, he, did ha he was an art appreciator. He collected quite a, a bit of African art because um, that was a great inspiration to him. Um, and Cezanne, he was his, who was basically, he called his inspirational father. Um, he himself, I don't think he was his record keeper. He had a lot of assistants. He had people um, doting on him hand and foot. So he had a, a record keeper named Sebartes, who was the guy who went through the trash for him every night. Um, but Picasso, uh, he was not the great record keeper. Um, I don't know if, you know, he, he worked with Christian Zervos on putting together this catalog raisonné. He let David Douglas Duncan take all the pictures of the works that were not in the catalog raisonné. So he let people do the work for him. Um, I, that's the, probably the best answer I can give you. I don't know what his, his own collection uh, catalog would have been, who maintained that for him, but he did live with the art of other artists. Last chance for any questions. Am I seeing any hands? I think not. So I want to thank you so much. That was completely fascinating. And, you know, I've, I've got many more questions myself. And it's so interesting because we deal here with the aesthetics uh, on the whole. And these stories are just amazing and wonderful and the sleuthing. And your, your jobs both actually sound quite fascinating. Uh, you know, are they as fascinating as they sound? Yes. Yes, I, yeah, I, I thought so. So uh, thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Lucila, for, for bringing them. So please come back in the fall. We have a wonderful lineup already. We've got Martin Parr, British photographer. I'm hoping to have Camille Paglia, who's written another book on... Art, we've got the Warus, uh, a debate on art in the city. We've got all sorts of things lined up. It'll be confirmed soon, so check our website. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.